Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 2. The book of Luke chapter 2. We are in the midst of our Christmas series that we're calling Hark, looking at the four times in the Christmas story when angels appeared and spoke to people. So three weeks ago we talked about Zechariah who was serving as a priest when an angel appeared to him and gave him a message about a son he would have. Two weeks ago we talked about Mary. Uh, and then last week we talked about Joseph. And today we're going to look at probably the most famous, the most well-known time when an angel speaks in the Christmas story. But I was thinking today about Christmas traditions and about things that happen around Christmas, how people um, celebrate differently. And as you look through kind of the history, even of our country, even in the last 30 to 40 to 50 years, people celebrate Christmas differently. Things come into style, go out of style. Things happen now that didn't happen a long time ago. Things happened a long time ago that don't happen now. Things have kind of come and go. I was thinking about this because um, there was been a couple of stories recently about one of the things that's making a big comeback with Christmas are these green ceramic Christmas trees. You know, seen that like I've seen it's been like two or three places where we put the little lights on it. We have one in our house because Susan in her house grew up with one. Her mom gave her that every year. She put the little lights in there and we've passed that on to our girls and our girls do that every year. And so that's one of those things that kind of came back. And I was thinking about things around my house that we don't do anymore or that I don't see as much. And maybe you do this at your house. But like in our house, when I was growing up, we did tinsel. Do you all remember Tinsel. Tinsel is that, and that, isn't that the stringy stuff they just kind of throw on the trees? That's not tinsel. Whatever it was. We did that. Garland, there's not as much of that anymore in our house. There, uh, I was reading some things in the 50s, a big craze was aluminum Christmas trees. Um, not anybody here ever had an aluminum Christmas tree? We had some aluminum Christmas trees. Uh, you know what they said killed the aluminum Christmas tree? The Charlie Brown Christmas special. Because in that, one of them suggests, let's go get an aluminum Christmas tree. And they're like, no, we are not doing that. And Charlie Brown's little, you know, sad Christmas tree becomes kind of the model there. In the 50s, Christmas meant jelloed everything. Jelloed fruits, jelloed meats. And the reason was because if you could bring jello, it meant that you had money. Because it showed you had a refrigerator in your house. And so it was a status symbol. Right now, there was another man that became synonymous with Christmas, people celebrating Christmas a long time ago. And it was this guy. Does anybody know who this is, by the way? If I showed you a painting of his, you would recognize it. This is Norman Rockwell. Now, some of you may not know Norman Rockwell, but he was born in the 1800s, actually born on February 3rd, which is one of the greatest days in the history of the world because it's my birthday. But uh he was born on February 3rd. He's one of those guys that every year it comes up, you know, you share a birthday with. Norman Rockwell is always one of those guys. But Rockwell was a guy who is famous for painting Americana, painting um, what idealistic America looks like. He painted um, a series of things about the four freedoms that we have. He painted um, Thanksgiving meals. He painted um, pictures of, um, he was the guy that did most of the stuff for Boy Scouts of America for many years. Um, he Rosie Riveter, he painted during wartime. He's a well-known for all those kind of things. Many people have Rockwell Christmas cards they used to send out when they were um, several years ago. And he's, he became this kind of portrait of idealized American Christmas. 
family around the table, perfectly cooked turkey laid in the center, the patriarch of the family gathering everyone around, everyone gazing in awe and wonder. Christmas time, people having fun everywhere they went, packages being opened, people just full of joy. It's kind of carried on into the commercials that you see and the ideas you see on Christmas movies and all around is that Christmas is supposed to be this wonderful time of year, this magical time of year. In fact, people so kind of long for that. There is a city in Massachusetts, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, that every Christmas recreates one of his paintings in their town. I have a picture of what happens here. And so these cars come back, they park in the exact spots on his painting, and they have a full weekend where people go to experience a Rockwell Christmas. We all have this idea in our mind that we want it to be perfect, just right. That we want everybody to gather around and the family's all there and the kids open their presents and everybody's like, wow, thank you so much, mom and dad. This is exactly what I've wanted. And that the kids don't get bored with the toys on December 26th, that they actually play with them for an extended period of time. And there is family all gathered around and old, um, old problems are kind of pushed away and it's a kumbaya Hallmark family Christmas moment. We all want a Norman Rockwell Christmas. But most of us don't end up with a Christmas of Norman Rockwell. We end up with a Christmas more like this guy. (laughs) Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? We all want a Rockwell Christmas, but a lot of times we end up with a Griswold Christmas, right? We overestimate our ability to handle everything that's going to come our way. Much like Clark overestimated a tree fitting into his living room. We think we're going to put the perfect turkey down and something goes wrong and it's dry and it doesn't work right. And everybody makes you think, oh, this is good. This is good. But we know something has been messed up in the process. Family annoyances happen. We remember why we get together one time a year only. We want a Rockwell Christmas, but most of the time we end up overspent. Counting on a bonus or some money to come in. And instead we find out we've been subscribed to the Jelly of the Month Club. Like we have these expectations. And then it just is real. One of the things I love about the Christmas story in Scripture is there is no Rockwell Christmas there. It is as real as you can be. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about an older couple that were advanced in years who could not have a child yet. And in that place and in that time was one of the worst things that a family could experience. We talked two weeks ago about Mary, who was a 12, 13, 14-year-old girl whose entire life is turned upside down by an announcement from an angel that she never expected. And she realizes that the rest of her life is going to be lived with the rest of the world looking at her in shame. Last week we talked about a man whose life had been set out before him and hears news from his fiance and it tears his world apart and he doesn't understand how he's going to make it and that following God often means that we have to embrace inconvenience in our lives. It is dirty, it is real, it is grimy, it is not a Rockwell Christmas. And yet, it is still my favorite time of year. Because the promise that we have from what happens at Christmas is this. Christmas this year 
will not be perfect for you or for your kids or for your family. But the truth of the reality of what happens at the birth of Jesus means that one day everything will be perfect. Everything will be set right. All your relationships will be restored. There will be a time when there is no sickness or death or strife. And so today, in the midst of the shop till you drop, make sure everyone is happy, gift buying, food gorging, panic attack inducing, last two days before Christmas, I want us to stop and breathe and focus on the reality of what happened that first Christmas morning that makes our Christmas even better than a Norman Rockwell painting could ever be because of the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This is the first registration that took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Next verse. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who's engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him tightly in a cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in a cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly... There was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So in the midst of all of the craziness that's happening outside of this place, I want to take a brief look this morning at what it means from that first Christmas that can carry us through and focus us again on the importance of what we celebrate. And the first thing we see in this passage, only two things we're going to point out in this passage, and I want us to look at them in depth. The first thing that we see in this passage is this, is that Christmas proves that God gets involved. I love how this story unravels, how it comes here. It's a beautifully told story of this husband and wife 
who are traveling together to have this baby and they are in the midst of it. And you know that as they're planning and as they're getting ready for it, it seems like just another obstacle is thrown in their way. Now, not only do they have to prepare for the baby, but they've got to prepare for the baby in a new place, in a foreign place, in a place that's not used, they're not used to, where they've got to travel together, where they have got to get together and go to Bethlehem because they have to be a part of this census. Government's always making problems for them in this place. And they're on their way there and they're about to have a baby and then they can't find a place to stay. You know, what I love about this passage of Scripture is that it proves again in the midst of the chaos of life that God is intimately involved with us. I want you to think about the planning that had gone in for Mary to having this child. If you're here and you have kids, do you remember what it was like planning for your first? We're not going to talk about your second, third, or fourth because... You plan for your first much more than your second, third, or fourth. Can I get an amen? Y'all don't want to admit that, but it's true, all right? I remember before we, we were, uh, before we had Eli, we, you know, we're getting ready for it. We don't know what to expect. And so we had to get the book, what to expect when you're expecting. And Susan read that all. And I, I got what dads are supposed to expect when your wife's expecting. And we read books about it. We made plans about it. We packed bags. We got a nursery together. We got everything painted just right. Everything hung just right. We had plans about how we were going to go to the hospital, about the plans of how who was going to stay where, when we were going to stay there. I had the bag in a certain spot. We were ready and prepared for it. We had ideas about what was going to happen when we got to the hospital. We had plans about how the birth was going to happen. All those, you know, you have these plans. You think about it. You plan about it. You work on it all the time. And yet the only thing we really weren't prepared for was how to be a parent, right? But that child is prepared for, it's planned for, it's getting everything, it's getting the crib put together, it's getting the chest put together in their room, it's getting it painted, it's getting the things on the walls you want, it's getting the toys, it's getting the gadgets that you need, it's getting the gadgets that you don't need, but you think you need, it's getting the gadgets somebody told you you would need that you will never need, it's forgetting to get the gadgets that you really will need, it's like preparing everything you can. Here's what I want to tell you. No matter how much you plan, no matter how much you prepared for the birth of your child, any of your children, none of that compared to the preparation that went into the birth of Jesus. No birth in the history of the world was more planned for, more prepared for than his. At the beginning of time, in Genesis chapter 3, when the sin of the world enters through Adam and Eve, immediately upon the the, uh, punishments being given for all the people that are involved in that, Adam's punishment, that they have to work the ground, they have to toil on the ground. Eve's, that there would be pain and childbirth. And then Satan also got a punishment. He had to crawl upon all that stuff was there. In the midst of all of that, in the midst of the punishments being given, also it gives us this light of hope when he looks at the serpent and says you will bite the heel of one of her descendants but her descendants will crush your head that even in genesis chapter 3 jesus is being prophesied about coming in the birth that happens at christmas in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to his people and he says, I'm going to pull out Abram from all of this and I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a nation that comes after me. I'm going to make you my people and you will follow me and I'm going to bless the entirety of all creation through you. Scholars agree that what is happening there is he is setting the stage for a line of people through which Jesus would come. When David is on the throne and is worried about what's going to happen to the kingdom that he is building, God tells him that he is going to establish from his family a line that will reign forever and ever and ever. 
And even this, think about this, at the beginning of Luke chapter 2, it says that there was a census that was caused, and it was the first one, while this guy had been governor, that he just happened to think of, you know what, now would be a great time to count all the people in the world, in the Roman world, and make them go to their hometown. Because the Old Testament had prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So even in that, God is orchestrating the events of the entire world to meet the place where he had designated for Jesus to be born. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. He got involved. I even think back to the book of Exodus. In chapter 1, we hear the story that the Israelites that had been in Egypt because Joseph had gotten there. Somebody forgot Joseph. They had made the Israelites slaves. They were working hard. They had been increased in their labor. And it says in Exodus one twenty three that the people of Israel cried out to God. They begged God. The idea there is on a daily basis. They are calling out to God, begging to God, pleading to God, deliver us, deliver us. God, you promised us through Abraham you were going to do something through us. Where is it? And it says in verse 24, and God heard their cries. When you get to the story of Christmas, you have to understand that thousands of years of history have been building to this exact moment. And not only do we know that God gets involved, but we find out from this passage of Scripture that God gets involved with people and that he has come for all people. Not for certain people, not for a couple of people, not for a specific type of people, but he's come from all people. I mean, the angel tells us that in the midst of the announcement. Today, I bring you good news of great joys that will be for all the people, for everybody. And they illustrate that fact by choosing the first people to come to to be the shepherds. You see, we hear shepherds today and we think of cute little sheep out there and we think of a staff and we have all these images of the Lord is my shepherd and we have, you know, paintings of that and Jesus holding a lamb is one of those pictures used to be in my Sunday school room when I was growing up. We have all these pictures of a shepherd, but in their day, in their time, shepherds were the least respected group in the Jewish community. They were outsiders, untrustworthy, unclean, filthy, unwanted, disliked by God. In fact, they were considered so untrustworthy that when a a criminal case was being brought or a judicial case was being heard, shepherds were not considered to be worthy testimonies. Their testimony was inadmissible in a court of law because they were considered to be people who could not be trusted. There was a philosopher in Alexandria that said there is no more disreputable an occupation in all of the world than that of a shepherd. And when you think about the story of Christmas, you think about these angels coming. I can imagine the conversation in heaven where they're there and God says, all right, it's time to announce the birth of my son. I need you to go announce it. That's awesome. Or who are we going to? Well, I've got a group of people that I want you to go to. All right. Does that mean are we going to the kings? No, you're not going to the kings. I mean, we're not going to the rulers of the world. Okay, good, good. We're going to the Roman Caesar. That's where we're going. We're going to Caesar in Rome. No, we're not going to Caesar in Rome. Who, who are we going to? What about the religious leader? We're going to the Pharisees, the scribes. No, you're not going there. Well, where are we going? You're going to the shepherds. The what? The shepherds. Shepherds were people that when they walked into town, people would get on the other side of the street. I grew up in a family. My mom and dad were here this weekend. 
they were in the first service. And I grew up in a family that, um, by, you know, as we chose professions and as God was leading us in different directions, I ended up in a family where my brother was a lawyer and I was a preacher. And so we heard all the lawyer and all the preacher jokes. Sometimes in the same joke, which was always a problem. But I don't know if you know this or not, but there are lawyer jokes out there. Do y'all know that? Right? About how untrustworthy they are or how they try to get things. Kind of uh, used car salesmen, uh, those kind of jokes. Well, in Jesus' day, when Jesus was born, those jokes were told about the shepherds. Nobody respected them. Nobody wanted to be around them. They were the untouchables. There is not a better illustration of the declaration of the angel that the news that was coming was good news of great joy for all people than the fact that it was given to the lowliest of people that could have been in that area. And we see that pattern throughout the life of Jesus, right? That when Jesus begins to minister, to whom does he minister? He ministers to tax collectors and to sinners, to adulterers and prostitutes, to the lame and the blind, to lepers, to outcasts and people who had been shunned by the community in which they were living. Jesus is showing us that the truth of God's love, the truth of God's grace, the good news of great joy is for all people. Y'all know what the word all means, right? All means all. And as believers, first of all, just a little side note, for as believers, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we desire to live our lives to bring glory and honor to Jesus, if we want to live as close to our lives as he did, if we want to be the people God has called us to be, one of the things that we must stand firm on, one of the things we must declare openly and proudly is that God's good news of great joy is for all people. No matter what nationality they are, no matter what religion they currently uh, practice, no matter where they live, where they come from, who they are they are valued in the sight of God and the good news of great joy is for all people and our job as believers in Jesus Christ is to make sure they hear it a pattern that Jesus shows us even in the announcement of his birth is that God desires for all people to understand how good he is for you today I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what's going on in your soul. I don't know if you think to yourself that you are too far gone from God or that if people really knew what you were like, they wouldn't even be sitting near you in the sanctuary and they sure wouldn't think you ought to be in church. If they knew what was happening in your mind and your thoughts in your private time, that they would be shocked. Here's what I want you to know. It doesn't matter how far you have run from God. It doesn't matter how little you have in life. It doesn't matter where you came from or what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't even matter if you don't even know what a socioeconomic status means. You just don't even care about that word. You just know that you're poor or from some other place or from some other region. Or you've got everything put together on the outside, but you know inside you are desperately away from God. It does not matter. Because the day, the good news of great joy is for all. You know what I love about this too? The angels appear and they give the news to these guys without telling them to get all cleaned up and ready to listen. They don't tell them, hey guys, hey, can y'all go wash up a little bit? I got something we need to tell you, all right? They just come in the filth and the grime of a nightly watch. And the mundane of the mundane and break into their lives.
So there's some people that think, you know what, I would really like to start following Christ or I'd really like to start going to church or I'd really like to give my life to this or to follow or to do more or to follow more of what I need to there. But the first thing I got to do is I got to take care of these three or four things in my life before I can ever start following Jesus. Or maybe you're a believer and as you have walked in your faith with the Lord, you have distanced yourself from him. You have walked in some way away from him and you have things in your life that are not honoring to the Lord. And you think to yourself, before I can really get back on track walking with the Lord, I'm going to have to take care of some things on my own. I'm going to have to get rid of some things on my own and then I'll start following Jesus. The point that is made in even them coming to the shepherds is God doesn't expect you to clean yourself up before he starts the cleaning process. When I was growing up, we had... Um, we had a lady that came to our house every other week and she would, she would uh, clean our house. And I just always remember as a child, uh, mom and dad tell me in my room, at, you know, the night before and say, hey, don't forget, Dorothy's coming tomorrow. And when Dorothy comes tomorrow, we got to clean up. I said, what do we, what? She said, we got to clean up. And my question always as a smart aleck teenager was, why do we have to clean up the house for the cleaning lady to come? Right? Because they would say, well, listen, we just have to. We have to clean the house so the cleaning lady can come clean. That doesn't make any sense, Mom. I understand the whole point that she does deep cleaning. He's not picking up my clothes. I understand that. But what I'm saying is there are a lot of people who are followers of Jesus Christ or who would desire to do that. But they think to themselves, I've got to get myself saved before the Savior can save me. Or even people that are walking with the Lord that have stepped away and they think, i got to clean up my own sin before I can ever really start living with the Lord again. And Scripture makes it clear, we can't clean ourselves up. We come to the Lord just as we are and He does the work. The first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that He gets involved. He is not a distant God. He is a God that is active here. He planned the birth of Christ from the very beginning. He has it in place in the midst of a very real place to come and get involved with all people. And here's the second thing we see in this passage. Not only does he get involved, but he get involved, gets involved and God brings joy. Let me just say this from the beginning. God getting involved in our lives could be a very bad thing. When you see in Scripture when people have an encounter with an angel which isn't even God, but is close enough to God to have a glimpse of the glory of the power of God, whenever you see that in Scripture, the first thing they do is they freak out. They go nuts, they get scared, because the first words that angels almost always utter is, don't freak out. Stop getting scared. Quit it. You see, sometimes we are people that think, well, I just want to have an encounter with the Lord. And the reality is that if we were just having an encounter with the Lord, us and our sinfulness is not going to go well with the holiness and power and purity and might of God. When Isaiah goes into the presence of the Lord in the temple, he crashes to his knees. He cries out in anguish, woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am filthy before the Lord. I have no right to stand here. When the disciples see Jesus do something that is unexplainable except for the fact that he is somehow of God, they cry out, we do not deserve to be here. When the disciples, the three that go with him, go up to the mountaintop and he has a transfiguration and he is transfigured 
before them into a symbol of the glorious self that he is. They say, can we erect tents up here so that we aren't blinded by what's happening? When he wants to come by Moses, Moses says, no, 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 no. I can't see you face to face. And so let me just see the backside. Let me just see your back so that I can know your presence is here. Moses, even just seeing that, comes down from the mountain and is glowing because of his interaction with the Lord God. The Ark of the Covenant was thought to contain a symbol of the presence of God. And when someone touches it in an unauthorized fashion, they die. Just God getting involved isn't necessarily good news. It's kind of like the two brothers that are downstairs, hypothetically, wrestling with each other. And the dad says, don't make me come down there. All right? Because if dad comes down, it's not to give hugs and kisses. Although that might be a better punishment for them than some other things, right? We don't want God to say, don't make me come down there. The good thing is, when the news comes that God has gotten involved, it's not just, I'm coming down there. He says, today I have for you what? Good news of great joy. You see, most of us overestimate our goodness. Like we look around and we see other people and you're like, man, I'm going to tell you what, maybe I'm, I'm not all that I could be, but at least I'm not. We start to think about our own accomplishments. We start to think about how many times we've been to church or how many times we've done service projects or how much money we've given to uh, charitable organizations or how faithful we've been in certain areas of our lives or how we've not done the things that are really, really bad in life. Or if we did those things that were really, really bad, we were really, really sorry for them when we did them. We're not just people out there doing them and not worrying about them. And we begin to compare ourselves to other people and we get a skewed view of who we truly are as people. We begin to think of ourselves as better than we are. It'd be like me going down to the gym after church today and taking Maddie and Ava. I used to could use my boys in this illustration. That doesn't work anymore because they would beat me. But if I would take Maddie and Ava down there and I were to play basketball with Maddie and Ava, I could absolutely dominate. Right? Maddie going up for a layup, rejected. Right? Stealing the ball. And I'd have to put the goals down for them to give them a, a chance to shoot the ball. And when I get the goals down, you know what? On a six-foot goal, I can dunk, right? Okay, on a six-one, but six-foot I might be able to get up. I can get at least three inches off the ground. So I'm stealing it and blocking it and taking it end to end and throwing down a hammer dunk on them. I could convince myself that I am one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Did you see me dominate? And then if LeBron James walked into the gym, put the goals back at 10 feet, suddenly my basketball prowess is done, right? Now, I don't have to have illustrations as much as LeBron James. I'm helping Kevin Steelman coach a 7th through ninth grade basketball team. And last week we scrimmaged with them, and I felt like I was 84 years old on the court. I got trapped at the half court. I got trapped in the mid court. I got rejected. I got pushed to the ground. I got tripped. I tried to make a move and I fell. Like, you don't have to have that level to figure out I'm not what I used to be. A lot of us look around and we think we're playing on a gym 
with a six-foot goal playing against people like Maddie. But the reality is when it comes to how good we are, the standard we have is the baby born in the manger, Jesus Christ, God himself, who is perfect. And in that case, we vastly overrate our goodness. And so if the news that was coming that day was not good news of great joy, none of us could stand up underneath it. But the news is good. You see, Jesus didn't come to show us how bad we are. Jesus didn't come to tell us that we had a long way to go. Jesus came to save us. And that child born in the manger in Bethlehem, it tells us in Philippians chapter 2, was a child who, though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but made himself a servant and became obedient, became a child, and even became obedient unto death on the cross for you and for me. Good news of great joy. It's good news of great joy because Christmas means never having to doubt whether we are loved or not. It is proven in that moment that he loves us. Good news of great joy because Jesus came to identify, to live life like we live. He came to a place and time that did not have technological advancement, that was not easy, that was not comfortable. He could have chosen any moment in history in which to come. He came at that moment and lived 30 years in obscurity before bursting onto the scene in ministry in a place that had dangerous food and the water couldn't be trusted and disease was rampant in those communities. When the average lifespan was somewhere less than 50 years old from all people and people routinely got sick infant mortality rate, child mortality rate was great, he had friends who would pass away because of illness, he had family that would pass away because of illness we don't see his dad when he comes back on the scene when he is 30 years old probably because his dad had passed away in the intervening years, he dealt with the grief of the loss of a parent he dealt with the grief of the loss of friends, we see him at the tomb of Lazarus crying because he understood the emotions that go on with that, he came as a child in a manger, not in a fancy crib somewhere, but in a feeding trough for animals to parents who didn't even have a place to stay because everybody they knew had shunned them, had pushed them out. And when they got to town, everything was already filled. Nobody wanted a pregnant lady that was about to give birth to come into their home and to stay because of what it could mean. And those were the family conditions in which Jesus grew up. He lived in a family that could not afford the normal uh, offering when it came came time to dedicate him at the temple. So they gave the poor man's offering. He lived in a family that had to escape because he was in danger of being killed by the king of the area. He lived in a family that was poor and uneducated and just barely made it. And he did that so that when you come to him and say, I don't know how I'm going to make it through losing a parent, he can say, I've been there. Man, I'm so hungry right now. I've been there. Man, I have people and friends that have betrayed me. I've been there. It's good news of great joy, not just because he came to identify with us, but he came to show us how we ought to live. If you want to know how to live your life, just look at Jesus' life. The way he treated people, the way he taught, the way he loved, the way he spent time with the Father, the way that even in the midst of a crazy, busy schedule, he made time for his relationship with God. It's good news of great joys because he came to identify with us, because he came to show us how to live. But it is ultimately good news of great joy because he came to stand in your place and die for you. 
He who knew no sin lived a perfect life. He who knew no sin. That baby in the manger that is cute and cuddly would be the savior of the world who would take your sins and mine. He would become sin for us. It is good news of great joy because he promises us that for those of us that follow him, that one day all illness, all strife, all quarrels, all death will be eliminated. And we will live forevermore in a place that we cannot even begin to imagine now, primarily because the presence of God and our Savior, that baby in the manger, Jesus, will be with us. His good news of great joy for all people. So here's the question. What will you do with the message of Christmas? I love the shepherd's reaction. I mean, imagine what they're experiencing. These are guys that never, I mean, when you say, I never expected that to happen. This, was, this wasn't on the radar of anything they expected to happen in their lifetime. And it says in verse 15, when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened to see what the Lord has made. No, the Lord told us, let's go see it. They don't sit around and talk about stuff. They don't have a conversation about, did that really happen? Pinch me. What's going on here? They just say, let's go see it. And they go and they find Mary and Joseph. And this is what I love. They hear them. They hear the message. They tell them, can you imagine Mary and Joseph on their own, having this baby, no place to stay out, feeling like at this moment that the world has forgotten about them? Their families aren't around. We don't see any evidence that any friends are there. They are by themselves literally in this corner of the world. Their decisions to trust God have shunned them from the rest of their family and friends and communities. They are by themselves. They are sitting there with their newborn child thinking about all those ahead of them, how tough of a road it's going to be. But they're going to make it just the three of them when all of a sudden this group of shepherds show up and tell them that God is with them. And they have that moment. Verse 17 tells us, after seeing them, after the shepherds saw them, they reported the message they were told about the child, and all who heard it were amazed. And then verse 20 tells us that the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard. The shepherds immediately began to ponder the truth of the child born in the manger, but more than that, to tell people about the good news of great joy. What are you going to do? In the midst of all that is happening and the package wrapping and the gift buying and the everybody's got to be happy and food gorging, panic attack inducing Christmas, will you take a couple of moments over the next few days and just think about what Christ has done for you? And when you take the opportunity going forward, Tell other people about what that is. Let's pray together.